morning. Thanks for bringing the church, as I say, each week uh, into this video stream, onto this lawn, on this perfect 70-degree cloudless day. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church. I'm the guy who most Sundays gets the privilege of opening up the scriptures as we come together as God's people, along with those who may be exploring the truth claims of Christianity, which if you're with us and you're not a Christian, super excited that you're here. Hopefully by the time you leave, you'll have a, a clear indication of, of what the Christian church actually believes perhaps if you've been deceived by this hyper-churched, under-gospeled subculture that we call the American South. Speaking of walking through the scriptures, we're currently taking the better part, if you haven't been around the past few weeks, uh, of the next few months to put in our proverbial headphones, you might say, and listen to a 15-song album within the hymn book of the Old Testament. One of the more famous books of the Bible, the book of Psalms. We're working through 15 of those Psalms over the course of the fall, leading right up to the season of Advent. It's an album, a 15-song al album that the Israelites would have been incredibly familiar with as they made it their playlist in traveling to Jerusalem. Jerusalem several times a year for the major Jewish feasts and festivals. It's a playlist that continues to bear significance in the lives of God's people today as we travel down this, this rugged road of discipleship, you might say, filled with lyrics that communicate something of the honesty of the Christian life, the reality of, of what it's really like to live east of Eden amidst the backdrop of a fallen world, a broken world, Inviting us to, to cry out to God with the full range of human emotions, reminding us of who we are and where we're going, disciples of Jesus Christ on our way to the celestial city of God, where fallenness and brokenness, as we just sang, shall be no more, and our song will be one of collective eternal thanks and praise. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Psalm 123. That's where we'll be this morning, underneath the the clickable link for lyrics that James mentioned earlier uh, in the service is a clickable link for sermon slides. So if you're a visual learner, you can, again, go to our website, click on the Digital Connect Guide, big orange box, and right up under the, the lyrics link, you'll see a sermon slides link. That's also where you'll find a clickable link for the passage that we'll be in this morning. So you can also access uh, that resource to utilize the, the digital version of the scriptures if you don't have a copy of the scriptures. As you're turning there, uh, let me just say, I, over the last couple of weeks, um, God has been kind to reveal something to me. About five months ago, if you were around, you may recall that I shared an article via MailChimp with the church that included this kind of language of people of a cautious profile or a confident profile in the midst of COVID-19. And I think that was meant to kind of get after the heart of people leaving their homes a little more than others, stepping out into society. And I've become aware over the last couple of months that what I thought was helpful language to give hang handles for talking to others, I actually think it muddies things up worse than it, it clears things up. And so I just wanna say this morning, if that language that I've used adopted from an article a few months back has done more harm than help, I apologize. Because I, I'm becoming increasingly aware of how nuanced everyone's thinking and decision-making truly is in all of this so that to use the language of confidence without incorporating the fact that you can do that cautiously or the language of caution without acknowledging the fact that you can do that confidently, I think loses the nuance. So. 
if I need to say I'm sorry, I'm sorry, because I always want to be a person that clarifies when I open my mouth rather than muddying up the water. So with that said, I'm going to pray that that happens this morning as I open my mouth for about a half hour to come. So if you'll join me uh, in prayer, let's go to this great God that we just sang to. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning, as we're going to see in this morning's psalm, desperate for your mercy, begging you, not asking, begging you to minister to us through the preaching of your word. Would you help us to see you bigger this morning as we lift our eyes to the throne of heaven? Would you convict us of any indwelling sin by your spirit? Do you reveal blind spots to us? Would you encourage us to faith where we need it, where we're discouraged as you attend the preaching of your word in mercy and power? It's in Jesus' beautiful name I pray, amen. So up to this point, just to kind of play catch up, if you've been around for any period of time with our church, you know I like to treat every sermon series as if it's a Netflix uh, television series. I can't escape the world of TV and film and trying to kind of make sense of where we are in the Bible because it is a great story. It would make the greatest of films. It is the greatest of books, the Bible. And so I want to attempt to kind of paint a picture of, of previously on uh, former episodes in this series. How did we get to this place? If this was an album, it's meant to tell a story, right? What, what kind of story is it trying to tell? And so up to this point, we, we've seen something of a clear progression in the story that this album is trying to tell. The lead off track, Psalm 120, where we began a few weeks ago, setting the stage for the Christian journey. The psalmist surrounded on all sides by this world, not his, his home. Longing for something better on his pilgrimage to the great city of God. A reminder, as I've said for weeks now, that the road of discipleship begins with discontentment. The coming to the end of ourselves and the promises of this fallen broken world. Reminding us that, that the Christ follower is both a pilgrim and a, a disciple, always learning, always moving. The second song on the album, Psalm 121, a song of providence, the perfect follow-up to the lead-off track, a declaration of confidence in God's never-ceasing, never-ending care amidst the dangers of the journey itself. As the psalmist sings of a God mighty in power, having brought about the universe, as we just sang, by virtue of his authoritative decree, committed to wielding his power and keeping his people on their perilous journey to glory. A God who never sleeps, as we looked at a couple weeks ago. A God who never slumbers. A God who never grows wearisome of preserving his people so that no danger has the final word for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Song meant to inspire confidence as we look above the hills of danger to the, the maker and sustainer of heaven and earth. The one who sent his son to rescue us from the greatest danger that we might know the inseparable love of God. A God who will someday bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom where peril and death shall be no more. The, the third song on the album Going back to last week, Psalm 122, it's a song of arrival. It's a song of worship. The psalmist having reached his destination, the, the city of God, the city of Jerusalem, the place of the house of the Lord, the place of the thrones of the house of David, all that surrounds him, a reminder of the covenant promises of God as he joyfully stands within the city gates. A song, as we talked about last week, that, that looks beyond itself ultimately to a greater temple, 
to a greater city, to a greater king, a song that finds its ultimate hope and fulfillment in Jesus Christ, in whom we can know the stability of a forever king, in a forever kingdom of perfect justice and equity, in a forever city of peace and security, the new Jerusalem, a city of unified saints overwhelmed with the psalmist, like the psalmist with joy, offering eternal thanks and praise in the forever house of the Lord to use the language of Psalm 122 itself. A song that invites us to live today in light of that tomorrow as the countercultural city on a hill that we are, citizens of heaven's king, the spirit-filled temple of the Lord. This morning psalm, seems to break the progression in the story that this incredible album is, is out to tell. Psalm 123, it's a, it's a song of both individual and corporate lament. We know that because we have the language in, in the beginning of this song of I and my, followed by the we and our and us kind of language as the psalm goes on. It's ultimately a cry for God's mercy amidst the sea of scorn and, and prideful contempt. It's eerily similar to the language of, of Psalm 120 where we started this journey, which begs the question of whether or not we've actually moved at all. Are we stuck? And in part, the answer to that question is yes. Not meaning that we're not making progress on this rugged journey of Christian discipleship, but rather meaning that we're never truly out of the woods as we continue on the Christian way. In the words of John Bunyan in his great work, Pilgrim's Progress, which by the way, if you've never read that, now would be a great time as we walk through this series. It pairs beautifully with these 15 Psalms. Bunyan says very simply, through the wilderness of this world, we journey. Meaning that until we stand in the eternal celestial city itself, lament will continue to be a part of our song. It's inescapable. This world reminding us that things are not as they should be, that we're not home yet, that sin is real, that suffering is real. But lest we think that Psalm 120, where we started out this series, and Psalm 123 are without distinction, the same old lyrics to the same old song, that's, that's just not true. There is a difference between the two. One that offers us a window of sorts into how to relate to this God that we worship, particularly when the answers to our troubles are not within sight that the emphasis of Psalm 120, going back a few weeks ago, is on comfort and assurance. The psalmist having received the promise that God would surely deliver him. Imperfect justice, bringing arrows upon archers and fire upon arsonists. The emphasis of Psalm 123, this morning's psalm, is on mercy in the midst of the uncertainty of the waiting looking up when the simple lifting of, of our eyes feels like all that we can manage in the moment. Only to discover, and this should bring tears to the eyes who are desperate for God, only to discover when we look up that the Lord has never stopped looking down with eyes of mercy. This psalm begins, verses one and two, with these words. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. The language here 
It's very similar to that of Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? But here, the psalmist lifts his eyes not to the hills, but to the one enthroned in the heavens, the only sovereign, the king of glory, the earth, his footstool. I love the way Isaiah chapter 40, verses 22 and 23 put it. It says, it is he, the Lord, who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's you and me. It's he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the universe as emptiness. Just as easily as my wife spread out a blanket for our two children on this lawn this morning, so God does with all of creation. It's how much bigger he is than his creation. It's to this great God that the psalmist cries for mercy, mercy being the predominant theme, that word showing up three times in this shortest of songs. The, the language here of lifting up one's eyes, communicating something more than, than just a glance in God's direction. Something of a steady, deliberate, intentional gaze, a gaze filled with longing, a gaze revealing something of the psalmist's desperation. Like a servant might look to his master or a maidservant to her mistress. It's an imagery that, that communicates a neediness, a dependence entirely on the mercy and loving kindness of the one in authority that the master must provide, otherwise the servant goes without. That the mistress must provide, otherwise the maidservant goes without. So it is with the one enthroned in the heavens, the psalmist says. That, that this psalm reminds us that as God's pilgrim people, if you're a Christian, we're to look to the Lord for mercy, knowing that he alone has the power and authority to give us what we need waiting patiently, waiting trustingly, even when and especially when things do not seem to make sense. This is a God who is never confused by our circumstances, a God who's never surprised by the timing of anything that takes place in our lives, a God who's always working, never takes a break, never clocks out on seeking to fulfill his promises to his people through both the joys and the sorrows of life. This is a God who never stops working through his unseen hand of providence for his glory and our good. This psalm, it, it invites us to a posture of patience and trust in our moments of greatest desperation, looking to the one enthroned in the heavens for, for mercy rather than to use the biblical language, fashioning golden calves on the basis of our own perceived imperfect timing on God's part. You could say it this way, when it comes to mercy, it's our job to wait. It's the Lord's to act. The psalmist goes on in verses three and four to say this, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. These lyrics help to bring some clarity to the nature of the mercy so desperately needed, namely relief from the, the scorn and, and contempt shown to the Lord's faithful by those who surround them, treated as of no consequence, mocked and ridiculed by those who think they're superior, jeered at for their humility, misunderstood for their faithfulness. 
It's similar to the frustration expressed in Psalm 120, that, that lead off track where the psalmist cries out to the Lord in the midst of being surrounded by lies and deceit, hatred and, and hostility. Some believe that that language, the scorn of those who are at ease to be referring to unfaithful Israelites, those among God's covenant people who indulged in their lives of luxury rather than walking in obedience to the Lord. And there's certainly language that would align with that kind of interpretation. Amos chapter six, verse one says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. There, there are others who believe the language of this morning's Psalm, the scorn of those who are at ease to be referring to unbelieving Gentiles, wanting nothing to do with the God of, of Israel. And there's language to argue for that as well. Zechariah 1.15, God says, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the, the disaster. Either way, we're talking about those who have been lulled into a false sense of security, who push God to the margins and ridicule those who don't. I'm reminded of of the church in Laodicea, if you were around for the, the series that we did entitled The Seven, where we looked at the seven letters written to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, it was the church in, in Laodicea whose self-sufficiency re resulted in self-delusion. Like, like the many, I would argue, today who are inoculated to Jesus Christ. Having a, a mild form of the gospel, just enough for their soul to fight off the real strand every time it shows up which is why I think it's possible to participate in gatherings like these for months, even years, for some decades, and never experience more of Christ. That many of us, particularly in the American South, are conditioned to fight Jesus off. We're good with a mild form of him, just enough to feel good about ourselves, but try to inject us with more of him, and our souls go into immunization mode live there long enough, and like those who surround the psalmist, you begin to ridicule those who position themselves humbly at the feet of the king. Why live desperate and needy when you can live with your golden calves of complacency and self-reliance in seeming relative ease? Here's the irony. The, the irony is that there's nothing more absurd and worthy of ridicule than complacent, self-reliant religiosity. C.S. Lewis captured it in a single sentence in his essay entitled Christian Apologetics, where he once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be, he says, is moderately important. And yet, the American church is filled with those who are, to use the language of this morning's psalm, at ease who somehow managed to, to fill their bellies on a steady diet of scorning the poor in spirit, ridiculing the meek, mocking those whose posture like the psalmist is absolute and utter bankruptcy before the Lord, who bring nothing more to the table than eyes lifted up. Which the, the psalmist goes further on to contrast those who surround him by using this language, verse four, he, he calls it the contempt of the proud. 
Those perceiving themselves to be, if we could use the language of verse one, enthroned in the heavens of their own greatness, who arrogantly look down on the Lord's faithful. In their minds, the final arbiters of rightness, who not only think too little of God's people, but too highly of themselves. Those who treat others as beneath them and quickly dismiss all who fail to measure up to their standard of greatness and rightness. Though, going back to a previous scripture reference, they themselves live and breathe among the grasshoppers. Their place of habitation, the same earth and footstool as everyone else. Again, this Psalm revealing true folly as there's nothing more absurd, nothing more worthy of true ridicule than one earthen grasshopper looking down on another rather than up to the throne of heaven like the psalmist. This is mind blowing to me. And it's the upside down thing that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about this, that the psalmist appears to be in the worst place. And yet he's actually positioned in the best place prostrate before the throne of heaven's king, lifting his eyes to the only true sovereign for mercy. While those who look downward live in the misery of their own pride and self-reliance. The psalmist looks up, he cries out, God, give me what I need, whether it be the, the gift of your strength and wisdom to endure or the merciful gift of your deliverance from the ones doing the condescending. And that, that's the, the posture of true Christianity, is it not? Eyes lifted up, not looking around, measuring ourselves to one another or looking down on one another in condescending, mocking ridicule, refusing to renounce God in self-reliance, refusing to join the condescending and proud, knowing and believing that our God sovereignly rules over all things, and gives his covenant people everything we need, particularly when that need is for mercy. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in the book I've quoted earlier in this series. He says, God does not treat us as alien others, lining us up so that he can evaluate our competence or our usefulness or our worth. He rules, guides, commands, and loves us as children whose destinies he carries in his heart. The word mercy, Peterson says, means that the upward look to God in the heavens does not expect God to stay in the heavens, but to come down, to enter our condition, to accomplish the vast enterprise of redemption, to fashion in us his eternal salvation. How, how do we know that, that this is who God is? How do we know that, that this is what God does? We need look no further than mercy coming down in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus entered our condition, a, a pitiable world of lost sinners that we might know the hope of a restored relationship with the one enthroned in the heavens, verse one. Which is why the apostle Paul uses language like this. Ephesians chapter two, very famous passage, verses four and five. But God being rich in what? In mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we couldn't look up. We couldn't even look up. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, Paul says. He, he goes on to say just a few verses later, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is your, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
not a result of work so that no one may boast. A dependence like, like the psalmist entirely on the mercy and loving kindness of the one in authority. The master must provide, otherwise the servant goes without, and that includes our salvation. Isn't it good news that the master has provided in Jesus Christ, who experienced the greatest scorn, the greatest contempt, the scorn of the ones he came to save as he hung on a splintered wooden cross in the place of sinners, dying our death, God's ultimate act of mercy, so that if you're not a Christian, I would say to you this morning that the kingdom of heaven is for the self-abandoning. Those who see their desperate need for a hope outside of themselves, not within themselves. I invite you, if you're not a Christian, this morning to fall prostrate like the psalmist before the throne of heaven's king. Lifting your eyes to the only true sovereign for mercy. Trusting that the mercy sufficient in saving lost sinners is found in Jesus Christ. Declaring, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. There, there's coming a day to use the imagery of this psalm where every mocking tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. Philippians 2, 11. If you're not a Christian, I would implore you, don't wait until that day. And if you are a Christian, I would present you with this question this morning. How in the world could our posture be anything other than that of the leper in Matthew chapter eight as a recipient of God's mercy in Christ Jesus? I've been washed. I've been made clean, wonder of wonders. It's a posture, it's the posture of the psalmist. It's a posture of humble astonishment at the mercy and grace of God. One that the Christian never leaves behind, though we've managed to culturally create a world within the church where it's possible to do that. It's a posture the Christian never leaves behind on the rugged road of Christian discipleships. Our lives, a never ceasing posture of Psalm 123, of desperation, of humility, crying out for the mercy that only God can give. It's why God's so kind to give us Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16, where the author of Hebrews so beautifully talks about the present ministry of Jesus Christ, saying, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, like the psalmist in Psalm 123, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive, here it is, mercy, and that we may find grace to help in time of need. I would ask this morning, in what way or, or ways do you need to be reminded that God is still on the throne? That he hasn't abandoned his post? that he's ready to meet you with mercy and grace, that he offers those things not with clenched fists, but with open hands. This Psalm invites us to a number of things. It, it invites us to repent of trying to take matters into our own hands in our greatest moments of distress, rather than patiently posturing ourselves under the waterfall of the master's mercy. It invites us to 
repent of any condescension that we may be bringing upon fellow citizens and saints, particularly that rooted in the soil of pride. It invites us to pray for scoffers that they might be set free from their own perceived greatness and no true pilgrim joy. And it invites us ultimately to pray with the expectation of Jacob, refusing to let go of our God until he blesses us with his mercy. Posturing ourselves humbly, dependently, charismatically with open hands until we receive it. If the psalmist were here before us this morning, I believe what he would say to us is simply this. Look up all you sinners saved with eyes of desperation and behold the God of mercy seated on the throne of heaven. I would encourage you as we sing in these moments to come to look above the heads of those doing the singing from this stage, just as a posture of Psalm 123, to look up into the skies, hold your phone above your head if you need to read the lyrics to do it, just as a declaration that this is what I want my posture to be before you, God of Psalm 123. I don't wanna look out playing the comparison game with everyone around me or look down on other people with a spirit of condescension like the psalmist enemies, I wanna look up to you, Lord. I invite you to do that this morning as we worship God together. There will also be an opportunity to participate in communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We have prepackaged cups on either uh, of these tables on each side of the lawn. If you haven't already grabbed one of those, you're welcome to do so. We take the, the bread representing the broken body and dip it in the cup representing uh, the, the shed blood of Jesus as you prepare to receive of the elements, I just encourage you to envision the cross and empty tomb as an acknowledgement of God's greatest and ultimate act of mercy in all of human history. God's greatest answer to the prayer of Psalm 123.